Our overreaching goal at the Amarillo Convention and Visitors Bureau is to become that generational travel destination. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. It's always great when a city can be self-sustaining with an economy that can provide employment as well as services, shopping, recreation, and entertainment. But it's even better when a town is growing because new residents fuel further growth in all sectors. But the icing on the cake is when there are transient people either passing through or staying a while. They come, they see, and most importantly, they spend money. We call them tourists, and the three pillars of tourism are gas, food, and lodging. They all need these three basics, but there's also room for some other pillars, especially as they pertain to fun and entertainment. Some cities have beaches like Miami, some have mountains like Denver, and some have pop culture associations like, like Albuquerque with Breaking Bad. And of course, Orlando has the mouse and all things Disney. It's a little more challenging out here on the high plains, but we do have a pretty fine canyon out here. And being strategically located means that there's never a shortage of travelers going this way and that. And they all bring money. We just have to figure out how to get some of that action. We're roughly, what, four hours from Albuquerque and Oklahoma City and six each from Dallas and Denver. Actually, when I interviewed out here in 88, they, they bragged about us only being six hours from the mountains in Dallas, which seemed awfully crazy to me back then, but now it's normal. Amarillo seems like a great place to at least take a break, but better yet, take off your boots and spend the night. My guest today is Cashin Smith, Executive Director of the Amarillo Convention and Visitor Bureau. In a nutshell, Cashin's job is all about turning Amarillo into a destination city, but also a major speed bump for those trying to get elsewhere. Cashin, what does it take to sell a city to folks who do not live here? You really have to have pride in your community. Um, you need to know the story, pay attention to the visitor or whoever you're talking to, whether that be a meeting planner or, you know, the leisure visitor. Listen to what experience it is that they want to have. Um, we don't necessarily have something for everyone, but if you listen, you've got the right story and you can really feed into what they're looking for. You don't want to give a sales pitch because as soon as you start doing that, you veer away from what they're really wanting to hear. So really just listening and being proud. And what are Amarillo's redeeming qualities you feature in those pitches? Panhandle hospitality is number one. You know, people talk about Southern hospitality and Texas hospitality, but I really do feel like the Panhandle is the most special of all the hospitality um, in our area. We really do have a genuine care for the people that we come in contact with on the streets day to day. So that is always number one. Um, I feel like we have a, a true Texas experience. Texas is a, a very large state, but if you're unfamiliar with the landscapes and the different flavors of food throughout the state, um, different histories, 
then you're really picturing what you see in West Texas whenever you come. And that's not what you get whenever you get off the airplane in Dallas or Houston. So to really explain that and that you have that Western experience um, in a different way in West Texas is, is part of um, what we do with that. And then, of course, you want to give them what they expect and talk about that. But you also want to wrap in the unexpected because we have such jewels in our community that people don't expect to find when they come here. Are there any limits to your abilities to attract visitors and conventions here? I mean, you know, you mentioned Dallas and an artifact of going to Dallas is, yeah, sure, they've got enough restaurants to keep you fed for about 10 years. They've got major league <laughs> sports. They've got amusement parks. But boy, do they have traffic. And we don't. Yeah. So we do have limits. But, you know, you got to know how to balance that out. Um Whenever it comes to conventions, you know, I, I can talk a lot about the limitations on that. We we have um, a good space of, of groups that come to us for, for many reasons, but really to be competitive in that market, you know, we would really need to build out the flights that are offered through the airport. Uh, meeting planners look at that and they really know that they have to add extra days to their already, you know, big schedules um, to allow for travel. So that's something that we overcome. Um you know, the limitations of it's it's wonderful that we're the hub of the panhandle, but sometimes um, attracting people, it's hard to make sure that they understand they can have a full itinerary in the area because we are so far from the bigger cities whenever you're looking at those road trips. Um, but we've got some great gifts to round those stories out and make sure that um, if we're telling it correctly, then they yearn to come here. I've heard you say before that a lot of what your job is about is heads in beds. It's a nice little rhyming cliche and, and it makes sense on on many levels because it points at a lot of different revenue streams not just including the cost of the hotel room i mean after all once someone stops for the night the odds are good that they're, they're going to eat and they're going to get gas and they may go shopping and then there's the hotel occupancy tax mm -hmm. which is yeah seven percent for the city and two percent for the amarillo potter events venue district you know, which also then adds on the the six percent for the state. So, if you get a hotel or rent a car, you're paying about fifteen percent tax altogether. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a major amount of money coming in. How many beds do we have in Amarillo? Um, and does that count all the properties, like those on the boulevard, or only those downtown and along the freeways? So we um, try to keep a, a whole picture of things. Um, our inventory, we're a little over 8,000 um, rooms. So that does include Amarillo Boulevard. They're definitely um, part of our properties and, and our partners. Um, different experience there as well, but ties to Route 66, the history um, that Amarillo has to offer. So we, um, coming out of COVID, really took a different stance on that uh, before we really didn't have them included, uh, the, the boulevard properties weren't really included in a lot of what we did, but we've really tried to put our arms around that. You know, there's the, the chicken or the egg, which comes first. And we think for revitalization, um, you really need to show the support first. So we've tried to really make sure that they're included in our promotions and our story. And, and those relationships have been building wonderfully in the last few years. What's our average occupancy rate? I, I saw this number maybe five or 10 years ago, and, and I recall it being in the 60s, 60 percent. And I thought, 
well, that doesn't sound great until I read a little further and found out that's actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. How does this compare to state and national averages? So we hold a really good occupancy rate, especially with the new builds that we constantly see coming into market. Uh, we we stay around 68 to 70 percent um, on a year average. Um, but to be honest, that really people don't expect us to be a tourism town. But we have true seasons. We we really do have tourist seasons. We have a very robust spring break season during March. Our summer season just is out of the park. Um, we'll come close to 90% occupancy um, in June and July and sometimes over that for the months. Um, so that's that's an even across the board, but, you know, for the year number. Um, but, yeah, we have really high peak seasons. And you're right about the new builds. I, I was... Uh getting some tires done recently up on the, the west side Amarillo and decided to go for a walk just to kill some time and noticed two more hotels going up in an area where there's already at least eight. Yeah, It's like, how many more can they possibly shoehorn into this place? So I believe we've got probably seven more projects coming online in the next 18 months or so, depending on when they really finalize breaking ground and those kind of things. But that's what we're watching and seeing. Uh, we just kind of overcame an 8% growth in inventory um, that had their first year open last summer. So we are constantly growing. Whenever you look at our occupancy numbers, it seems like they stay flat. The visitors are actually growing um, to compensate for that growth in the inventory. Now, we do keep an eye on that. Uh, We know that at some point that balance uh, can teeter one way or the other. So we definitely keep an eye on that, but um, it's good growth for us. I know it's not cheap to build new hotels. Uh, I, I I recall a, a, a new property in Tucumcari that opened a couple years ago that I did the math. It came out to about $85,000 a room to build it. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I mean, yeah. think about how long it takes to recover that investment. Um, so it's no wonder then that rates are what they are because they don't want to wait 20 or 30 years to get their money back yeah. on the deal. Um, but at the same time, you know, you say we've been fortunate to have an increase in the number of tourists to help offset the growth in inventory. But where, where do you see a, a possible saturation point? I mean, could we handle 9,000 or 10,000 rooms? You know, we we will get there. Um growth with the city, uh, economic growth, everything starts with a visit. So, you know, even whenever we're bringing businesses in that are planning on coming in and, and um, you know, putting roots down in Amarillo and in the area, uh, those are visits as, as well. So as, as all parts of our economy is bustling and moving, it's supporting um, that growth. Of course, every community hits a point where they have to really look at the saturation. Um, Grapevine's a good example of this. They actually here a few years ago went in and did a city ordinance that you cannot do a hotel project unless you have X amount of meeting space. And, you know, you have to build to speak to a certain market growth because their leisure really had hit a point where they had too many rooms um, to balance that well. And it was a very thoughtful process that they went through. I don't think that we're at a point where we need to be having that discussion, but it is definitely something that kind of stays on the corner of the desk 
to keep an eye on. And the hotels know this, you know, we, we have um, side conversations sometimes about that and, and the owners that are holding multiple flags and have multiple projects built out uh, for the next few years, kind of on their back burner, they understand that as well. So we're cognizant of it in the partnerships um, and we do have those discussions, but I think we're, we're pretty stable right now for the growth that we're seeing. But while we're busy adding some shiny new hotels into the inventory, there's always some that fall off the other end. Yes. Um, Have you had many of those lately? So, no. And one of the things about, and I don't want this to come out wrong because we've got great partners and, and you always want to have a good balance of options from, you know, the lower end of rates to the high end of rates to really compensate or to bring in the different travelers um, for different budgets. But there was a comment made a few years back by one of the hoteliers that was on our on our board, and it has stuck with me since. And he said, you know, we're not uh, overbuilt, we're under demolished. And, you know, that hurt my heart in one way because I, I love all the owners and, and the ones that really work so hard to keep their doors open. But it stuck with me because if you're not improving and staying up to the standards, you know, you can have a very old hotel that has a very funky, cool stay for the visitor. But if it's just funky, then, you know, then then that's where the issues can come in. So it does affect the reputation of all of the market. Um, so those are conversations that we also have. I mean, we're realistic about um, some of our older properties. I think that we've got owners that have done very good in the last few years, um, really being cognizant of that and trying to make sure that there's some fresh paint and the parking lot stay nice and clean. And And that's really all we need. As long as we've got the visitors to balance that, then, then I'm good with it. Well, you mentioned under demolished. I had never heard it put quite that way, but it instantly... Uh, stirred memories of what happened in Gallup, New Mexico a couple of years ago. That's mm-hmm. Route 66 down yeah. on the far west uh, side of New Mexico. And the city red-tagged um, six different old properties. Red-tagging is another way of saying uh, we condemn thee. <laughs> yes. Get get out. <laughs> and these motels were all vintage properties. Um, you can picture that, I'm sure. Uh, they had all become more or less residential, but they also had a few rooms that they let by the night, like 34 bucks a night. So mm-hmm. you knew what you were getting into. But what they wound up doing was uh, shaving probably close to 200 rooms off inventory and in the process flushed out a bunch of long-term tenants mm-hmm. with nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah. And that's an issue. You have to be very careful, um, very careful in those situations. How did Amarillo fare during COVID? I mean, I know that some parts of the country, hotels were lucky to even run at 10% occupancy. Yeah. So it was a scary time for sure. And, and you know, I've been in the industry. I've been in the office for 10 years now, but I've been in the industry and in hotels and convention centers for well over 20 years. Um, I've never seen anything like it in Amarillo. It uh, was something that didn't feel like it was going to be a reality because we have always stayed so stable through um, 9-11, through 2008, through all of these different disruptions that really had a, a heavy hit on travelers. We had always fared well. So, um, you know, the first couple of weeks as things were, were shutting down and, and becoming a reality, we were in spring break. So we are that pass-through market for so many families going on spring break that... Um, 
we fared really well those first couple of weeks because they still had to get home. So we were still getting those days. So we were a little bit behind the curve. But when that flushed out, we had a few months there that um, we were really, really uncertain. And we did get down to those 10 and, and 20 um, marks. The difference between our market and the other markets is the fact that um, we did not stay there the way that so many other markets in the nation did. We really came out of it way ahead of the curve. Our um, final quarter of 2020 actually outproduced numbers of the final quarter of 2019. So we were already back on track. And then in 2021, we had the biggest um, year we had ever seen. People needed to be outside. We were a road trip. Um, they were working off their laptops. Kids weren't in school. You know, they were working as well off their laptops. So there was a lot of flexibility in that leisure, leisure travel. And we were a good spot for that. We were a great soft drive with the kids, had great um, opportunities to get outside in spaces. Um, and we did uh, a great job through the office. I say we. Our marketing focus, which at the time, because we were so short-staffed, was the hope. So hope <laughs> did a great job of telling that story. And and um, with, uh, you know, spinning freezes and things like that, we brought the story in-house. And we found that that organic story from those of us who live here and not using so many media companies and those kind of things, we felt like it really helped us. And we've tried to stay true to that. You know, a lot of people didn't realize that, you could travel safely during COVID if you were cautious and mm -hmm. if you picked the right hotel, like uh, one that had keyless entry, for example, you never had to interact with a human. Yep. You just and, used your phone. And we had a lot of um, our hotels that their franchise offered those uh, opportunities already, but they weren't necessarily utilizing them. And um, they've we've we've seen a lot of changes in how the operations work at our hotels. And I know that's with every market, but um, in ours, it's it's very obvious. Well, during the uh, the current inflationary period, hotel rates have just gone through the roof uh, across the nation. Um, and it depends on you know what your your comfort level is for hotels and so forth, how much you want to spend and if you've got points somewhere and all this kind of stuff. But um, basically, I have seen my hotel chain of, of choice jump at least 20 to 30 percent. Mm -hmm. um, has this had any effect on Amarillo occupancies and tourism? You know, it, it has. We we watched our rates go up, and, and I talked about rate integrity a lot um, whenever we were going through this. We've always been a market that, in my opinion, has been underpriced. Um, our hotels have always lagged behind in average daily rates. Um, and so whenever we saw the jump in the rates and that confidence come behind it, and, and I say confidence, it was a necessity. Uh, you had to, you know, we went through changing pay scales and, you know, all of the supplies being so much more and really having the hotels really had to go in. And instead of buying the 10 sets of sheets they normally do in a month to kind of roll through inventory, if they could get their hands on it, they needed to buy in bulk because they might not be able to find it again for six months. So um, the cost was really hard on the owners. And that did um, show a reflection in the rate, but really in in my opinion, it got us to a level that we needed to be. And since that time, they have really held those rates. We have not seen them jump again necessarily with the inflation. This happened during COVID before we were seeing the inflation. Um, I think that 
the inflation is what has helped us to hold our rates. And, and I think it's necessary that we stay there. Let's talk a little bit about conventions and special events. Uh, these are things that really interest me. And, and yeah, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about a really big upcoming event, but uh, we'll hold on to that for, for now. Let's talk about the others. What types of gatherings do we host here in Amarillo, and, and what is their economic impact? Because really, that's, that's what it all boils down to. That's, that's your job, right? Mm-hmm. You, want, you, you want to make an economic impact. And and I I bet you have a rule of thumb, don't you, for how much each visitor spends each day? Yes, and it's 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 based on the market. So we've we've got numbers for um, you know meeting attendees, convention attendees. We've got numbers that speak to the equestrian attendees, sports attendees. You know that really break down because because they all stay different. A meeting attendee is here probably by themselves to go to the meetings. A lot of what they do is is based in the base of, you know, the home base of, of the convention itself. You've got equestrian um, attendees that come in. They bring their horse trailers. They bring family with them. They really get out and eat. It's not necessarily provided at the event. They have time to go shop in between their events, you know, so they really get out in the community. They spend a lot more and then sports, you know, you've got a whole family, but they're eating at McDonald's instead of in um, the local higher end restaurants. So it varies. I will say about $130 to $150 per person is, is what I would say is, is an average per day for uh, most attendees for different types of events. Um, but they're all, uh, all the money's green, you know, so it's all good dollars coming in. It may not be as green as the money that makes its way to Orlando, for example, <laughs> going to see the mouse. But, yeah, hey, no. we'll take it, right? That's right. <laughs> it's very important. It is vital um, to our community. Pre-COVID, our sales tax in Amarillo, 60% of it came from visitors. Now, coming out of COVID, that story has really fluctuated. And, and you know, sales tax has done great. Uh, in Amarillo, and and the EDC has done a wonderful job, and so we've we've been spending dollars at home and and those kind of things. So we'll see whenever that levels back out if we can get back into that. I think we've been floating between forty to fifty percent of the sales tax from visitors. And what can you do with all those hotel occupancy tax revenues? And for that matter, what can't you do? So we can promote to visitors. Um, there's there's legalities around those dollars. So the hotel occupancy tax, it funds our office and we are the destination promoter. Um, You don't necessarily see our ads in town very often because obviously we're, you're here, you live here. um, You're not going to stay in our hotels. The sole purpose of the hotel occupancy tax is to build the visitor and to bring rooms into the hotels. Um, so that can be spent on promotions that can be spent, um, in our case, a lot of it is spent to support the civic center. It can be spent on visitor information centers, historic preservation, support of the arts, but you have to make a case in all of those that ties back to how is it growing the visitation that goes into the hotels. Um, so it's meant to keep a stimulator in, in the process. Not long ago, I was in both Dallas and Austin, and I saw billboards for Albuquerque. So that mm-hmm. would be same, exactly. same thing, right? Yes. 
And uh, what about our baseball stadium? Wasn't that funded by HOT? It is. It yeah. is. Yes. So um, the bond that is out, and, and there's been some confusion in the community on this because hotel occupancy tax is confusing to people who don't deal with it. Um, but, yeah, because it's a tax, you assume that it's coming from the taxes of the community. And really our visitors are paying for that. Um, and then you've got the Elmore group in there, which of course manages the sod poodles. They are a tenant of um, the facility. And there's a lot of, I won't get too far into it. Um, there's a lot of thoughts from a lot of people in town that think that it, it's not really bringing visitors in, but I'll say the, the zip codes on their ticket sales prove that it does. What kinds of marketing activities do you and your office participate in each year? I know you've told me before about some of these conferences and so forth that you go to. Um, how do you sell us to possible conventions and events and individuals, for that matter? I mean, I'm sure you do a lot more than just make sure the rack cards are filled up and down the freeway. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, outside of just the marketing that we do that really, you know, feeds into people's hands and magazines and, you know, all of that. Um, we do a lot of trade shows, and it's very specific to the markets that we're going after. Um, for example, right now we have two people that are at a sports convention, a um, couple of thousand people that deal in different types of sports tournaments, and they are down there having one-on-one -on -one appointments with um, those sports uh, leaders and in looking at what's good fits for Amarillo with the facilities that we have. We do, um, of course, conventions uh, that are based on meeting planners that host conventions. So that might be for associations. Um, we really work very hard in the last few years on what do we have locally? You know, who lives here in Amarillo and what are they involved in? Uh, so we're utilizing our local residents to leverage um, the conversation. So if we've got a great uh, relationship with somebody who is involved with an organization and we can show that we've got support from their membership, it helps us go after those bids. And it, and, and it shows that they need to come into our area because they've got people here that want to bring it home. You know, So there's so many different ways uh, that we do uh, attract different types of groups. Do you ever think you could maybe see yourself working in a similar capacity in a city like Las Vegas, Nevada, not the one in New Mexico, <laughs> uh, a, a city where basically the whole economy is predicated upon tourism, conventions, special events, whether it's rodeo or some obscure trade show, whatever. Um, we, we saw what happened to them during COVID. Mm -hmm. It was a ghost town. You yes. could have laid down in the middle of the boulevard and been able to take a nap. Yes. Uh, I mean, what would it be like working in a city like that? Oh, you know, for me, that's hard to answer. I, I could do my job anywhere. I really could. I, I believe that I'm knowledgeable, you know, and about the industry as a whole. I'm from Amarillo. I have many generations um, that come behind me that that are from the panhandle. You know, literally on my mom's side, the wagon was brought in the trails, you know. So I'm, I'm so rooted here that even though I could happily work in the industry anywhere else, the way that I do it at home, I think just feeds a passion that is different. So um, that's a hard one. I you know, watching the layoffs that happened during COVID and watching the build back um, in some of the offices and the changes in the industry, 
um, I'm incredibly lucky, as is uh, the rest of our staff, to be in Amarillo. I know you said earlier that you really don't want to give sales pitches to tourists and so forth, but let's suppose that you did get cornered in an elevator or something <laughs> in uh, Dallas or Chicago or L.A., um, and you had to give an elevator speech, and you had a whole minute, you know, from bottom floor to wherever you were going higher in the building. What would you tell that person? Oh, I would definitely talk about the heritage of the area and, and the true experiences that you could have, you know, um, just our history leads so much. So I would definitely, you know, tell them about Route 66 and the icons, not just in Amarillo, but along the Texas Panhandle, um, the Route 66 and those special treasures you can find if you get off of I-40 and take the time to visit them. Um, and definitely uh, talk about cowgirls and cowboys in the West, you know, um, getting out and, and taking a posse ride on the canyon's rim and hiking and biking out in the canyon. So many people don't know that Polidori Canyon is the second largest canyon in the United States and that it's right here in our backyard. And, you know, there's so many different experiences around it. You can zip line, you can go do the Jeep and Hummer tours at um, Polidori Creek Ranch. You can have great experience in Canyon, you know, on the square. We've got so many different things. And then, you know, go go back to the hotel and dust off and, and put something nice on and, and go see the opera or the symphony or the ballet. You know, people don't expect the arts that we have. So always try to fold that in. Um, they're amazed that we house um, um, the arts groups that we do, especially the performing arts, but the, the artists that come through um, the exhibitions as well in our museums. What kinds of things are the, the really large gatherings looking for? You know, the, the conventions, the special events and so forth. What kinds of things are they specifically looking for in terms of a city's infrastructure, I guess? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I spoke a little bit to the challenges of the airport. We've got a great employment rate at the airport, but really it's our, our locals that utilize the airport more than anything. Um, it's hard to get here for an attendee for a convention. So that's one of the things that they're looking at. That's one of the things that we talk about when it comes to true conventions um, and meetings. They like the catering options. You know, they want to see the different types of menus within certain budgets. They like to see... Um, so many comps per sold rooms so that they can cover staff rooms. Um, they like to see convention space in hotels so that their attendees can go down the elevator and, you know, and, and ride into the meeting space and have everything under one roof. Um, we definitely overcome a lot of challenges in our bids and, and whenever we're bidding on groups, there's a lot of things that are more relational than what they're really looking for. Um, so we do win conventions, but I would say that after the bond failure in 2020, it did change how we look at truly putting dollars behind pushing for that. Um, and, and I, you know, we respect what the voters uh, want and will happily sell what we have. And, and we do support the Civic Center and, and very actively and aggressively bid for the business that we can get in. But we have a lot of challenges here. And, and that is um, a big reason why coming out of COVID, we took a very leisure mindset. Um, this is a market we know we can grow. We know that we are a destination. And if we tell that story right, we can um, really grow a market to help make up for where we're losing in conventions. 
After the break, we'll take a look at an upcoming special event that Cashin and her office is playing a major role in producing. Get ready to get your kicks on Route 66. Paying taxes is never fun, and for this reason, there's always a demand for more CPAs. Our MPA degree or Master's in Public Accounting prepares students to take the CPA exam and helps our clients navigate those tricky waters. Or you could use this as a stepping stone towards a PhD in a career in academia. Either way, our MPA will ensure that you are up to date on all of the generally accepted accounting principles and ready to toil in the world of taxation, debits, and credits. We're AA CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with the WT MPA in hand. Waivers are available for the GMAT. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or give us a call at 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach for those stars. It's not a surprise to anyone who knows me that I am in love with Route 66. Never mind that I grew up near the northern terminus of it in Chicago. Uh, I wound up here many years ago, 1989, with this teaching job at WT, only to find myself only minutes from that same road, the Mother Road, but in the middle of its run to the Pacific. But unless you are into old highways and the history surrounding them, most folks do not know that Route 66 along with all the other numbered federal highways, will turn 100 years old in 2026. And the CVB and others have joined forces to produce what will be the first of hopefully many Texas Route 66 festivals. Cashin, tell us all about what will be a fantastic time for many. Oh, there's so much going on. We're so excited about this. So there, there's two aspects of this. that We've got a 10-day festival that um, our, our partners all around town have really put their arms around us and gotten excited with us and helped you know, pull into the branding of this. And then and then we've got the events that'll scatter throughout the year that we want to make sure um, people know that these are also celebrations um, heading towards the centennial. So for the festival itself, we're coming out of the gate this year um, with a 10-day uh, event schedule, basically. And I'll just pitch it for a second. Visit Amarillo.com. Um, if you go there to visit Amarillo.com, as soon as you open the page, click on the header, and it'll take you straight to the calendar of events because there's no way I'm going to be able to remember everything that's on there. Um, but, you know, it's very important to us that if if you're coming from the east, whenever you hit Texas, you're entering the west. So we are definitely taking advantage of the fact that we have the Course Cowboy Ranch Rodeo um, that happens the first weekend of June. So uh, we're kicking off with them. We want to we want the visitors to see those cowboys walking around town and in their hotels and have the opportunity to go to the rodeo. And they've been a great partner. They've added a night to the rodeo this year. They have actually um, worked with us to move the cattle drive to Saturday morning. So it's more visitor friendly and we could really kind of blow it out of the water on that. So um, you'll see some classic cars and some other things added to uh, the Longhorns this year. So that's exciting. And we'll grow that year over year. Um, the festival true kickoff is going to be, or official kickoff is going to be at Hodgetown. Um, and they're going to have kind of a street party with food trucks, 
themed jerseys and celebrate Route 66 with us and and pull in some of those historical, you know, facts and feels and and all of the good stuff um, with their game uh, that Friday night, um, which is June 2nd. And then um, Cattle Drive on the 3rd, we've got um, concerts. Brett Young will be out at Starlight Ranch. We are doing East-West tours. One thing that is incredibly important to our office and that our partners have definitely understood the importance of is we need the traveler to understand that Texas Route 66 holds some of the biggest icons along the route. So we don't want them to just come in and spend one or two nights and then head back out to another state. Um, We're taking the next few years to really retrain the brain on the traveling Route 66 in Texas and and really get off of the highway and find those gems. So we're doing east-west tours. So there'll be a a full day of tours to the east, a full day of tours to the west. And then we'll have a day of, you know, kind of Amarillo highlights, highlighting um, Amarillo and Route 66 in Amarillo. But we really want to reteach the visitor how to travel Route 66 in Texas. So that's part of it. We will have um, a green book event. So we have an author, um, Candice Taylor, who actually did a lot of her research here in Amarillo. Um, She's coming in to do a special lecture and speak to an intimate group at uh, the conservatory at Amarillo College. Um, And I think that that one is very special. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Green Book, it is the African-American Guide to Traveling, um, I believe through the early 30s through the mid-60s, was utilized. And and it tells you where you can get gas and what towns you don't need to be in after sundown and where you can sleep. And, you know, it wasn't always a hotel. You know, sometimes it was a room in somebody's house, but it was the safe uh, travel guide. So that one is incredibly special. I'm super excited about that. And then we have um, the the finale day, which is June 10th. Um, It will start with Community Market, of course, will um, be downtown at Polk Street at the Chamber. Um, and Beth and Center City are doing a great job with that. They're going to theme everything out Route 66 that morning. And then at 11 o'clock in the Historic District, um, we will have a festival going on that is very family friendly. You'll find all different kinds of vendors community partners from all along Texas Route 66 coming in. Um, we're going to close the street down. There'll be Elvis per- Presley impersonators, a corn dog eating contest um, hosted by Sonic. Um, it's the Amarillo National Bank um, is is sponsoring the festival and, and we're just going out really big. So you'll find lots of activities. And then Parks and Rec, Amarillo Parks and Rec is going to hold their family fun fest down in Sam Houston Park that evening. Um, and we'll be running trolleys back and forth so you can kind of naturally go from one to the next. And, and then Starlight will have another uh, concert that night. So I mean, it's packed, and I am not touching on all of the events that are going on. Uh, The Historic District, I believe, is going to have an art walk on that Thursday. There's going to be some other events throughout the week and in other parts of town, too. We're definitely trying to focus on the fact that we are a Route 66 town. So we're excited that partners off the pavement have gotten involved and branded with us on this. Well, I I applaud you for doing this. I've been to plenty of Route 66 festivals between Chicago and L.A., but I've never seen one or heard of one that lasted more than two or three days, and here you are going a week and a half. 
Yeah. That's amazing right there. We want to build it and build it. You know, as soon as this is over, we'll sit down, we'll evaluate it with all the partners and figure out how to grow it within the 10 days. Um, when we get to 2026, we want, uh, you know, we want that branding. When you see a Route 66 festival sign, we want you to think of Texas first, um, no matter where where it is. So <laughs> why did you decide to do this? You know, Route 66 has supported us, um, our tourism industry, for 100 years almost now. And we've watched that dwindle. You know, when, when the, the Cars movie came out, we, we saw a big push. And it was like, oh, yeah, this, this is what it's supposed to be. And, and we're watching that kind of fall off again. And, and with COVID and the international travel falling back, you know, um, one thing that we've realized is that it was an easy itinerary and we're watching people in other Route 66 towns, especially travel Route 66 because it's, you know, again, an easy itinerary, jump in the car and you've, you've got a fun filled weekend or whatever. And, and we've been watching this and, and we've been talking about this um, since 2016, um, whenever national parks, um, you know, from a federal level, whenever it was made a historic corridor. And, and came on the radar. And one thing that we want to be very intentional about is um, really trying to provide another 100 years. We, we don't want that to go away. It's, it's why we exist in, in a lot of areas. You know, um, first came the railroads and then came Route 66. And, and we're a bustling town for many, many years. And, and Route 66 is part of that. So we want to encourage the growth of that. And what about Route 66 tourism? What what do you know about this? I mean, how many people come through town each year doing a Mother Road pilgrimage? I, I realize it might be hard to separate those out from just folks doing a road trip in general or passing through from Dallas to Denver or whatever. Do you have any idea what the pulse is of just the Route 66 part? You know, I would love to say yes, we've got a, an idea. We really don't. Um, we've got so much pass through that comes through. And then with the Route 66 Traveler, a lot of times hitting, you know, Cadillac Ranch and Big Texan and then heading on, it's it's hard to tell based on just who has gone down into the historic district because there are so many people traveling Route 66 that didn't make it down there. And there's so many pe people traveling I-40 that stop at Cadillac Ranch and Big Texan. We we are challenged in separating those out. I think that we'll have wonderful data by the time these festivals are over. And, um, you know, there's pieces of these festivals that after 2026, we hope to keep. We may move the festival into the fall. You know, we may find a, a more fitting time of the year for the traveler that wants to enjoy that. Um, but we definitely want to get our finger on that information and really know, cause we've got to know if we're growing it correctly. So um, I'll come back in a couple of years and let you know what we've found out. <laughs> I, I have encountered many, many, many international travelers in Amarillo and yeah, I'm sure some of them were just the, the casual incidental traveler, but my hunch is the majority of those were here for a reason. And invariably I, you know, I bumped into them at the big Texan or, more commonly out at the Cadillac Ranch. I mean, you can go to the Cadillac Ranch any day of the week during the nine warmest months of the year, and your your, your English-speaking capabilities may be in the minority. Yes. Um, there are so many international guests there. They, they eat this stuff up. And now, 
when it comes to our international travel, we know that Route 66 is the reason for them. Um, the state as a whole does about 22, and these numbers are 2019 numbers. Um, I don't really have clean data on this since, but um, going in before COVID, in the state as a whole does about 20%, 22% international travel. We know because of just the numbers coming out of Big Texan that we average more like 27%. It is just a fact that that is Route 66. I've, I've traveled up and down 66 more times than I can count. And I've seen some of the towns along those 2,400 miles really embrace their 66 heritage and maybe others, you know, not so much. And I've actually long felt that Amarillo was missing out on a gold mine of tourism revenues by not making 66 a centerpiece. And after what you've just been saying here the last 10 minutes, I am thrilled to see that 66 is now in the front seat. Yes, you know, I am too. And and I, I can't help. Um, my grandma, my dad's mom, actually um, managed restaurants and bars along Route 66, along the boulevard coming up into downtown. So he grew up on the bar stools and in the restaurant seats. You know, he watched the um, wrestlers and the rockabilly acts come through and, you know, and those kind of things. And I grew up with some of the neatest stories that all tied back to Route 66 and and kind of saw that pride. And, and it was hard even whenever I was a kid to find the shining stars because it was already starting to be let go. So, um I, I can say that I probably was um, guilty of taking it for granted, not really telling the story correctly, but but truly whenever um, they, they started talking about it from a national level, it sparked something in me, you know, and I felt it kind of spark throughout the partners. And, and whenever I say partners, I, I don't just mean our hotels, our attractions, our merchants, anybody who welcomes a visitor, we really do consider a partner in the office. So as it's it's been so exciting to see this kind of grow. And as we all come together on this, you can't help but get the community excited and get, you know, the politicians excited and get the and, and it will it will grow. And by the time we get to 2026, I, I just think it's going to be palpable. If uh, Route 66 tourism is a poker game, I feel like Amarillo is all in. We don't, we didn't hold back any <laughs> chips. We pushed them all forward, right? That's right. And uh, basically, you've thrown down the gauntlet to all the other states and cities along 66. And you know, you're getting ready for the centennial. And you know, it's like the other states and cities kind of blinked here a little. They thought they were already doing the right thing, and you're fixing to show them how, right? I think so. And I we said, hope so. And I said that in my best Texan, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're hoping this creates some good competitive, you know, uh, competitiveness between the states. We really hope that by 2026, we're not just seeing the communities within each state um, talk to each other and and build out um, experiences for visitors. I'm really hoping that on a state level, from state to state, we can really cooperate in a way that gives great itinerary options in different seasons of the year um, from one end to the next that people just can't pass up. Like not stepping on toes of other events like yeah. the big one in Springfield, Missouri every August. We wouldn't want to go head to head with that. Yeah. That wouldn't be good. And how do we all get together, you know, a couple of times a year and talk four or five years out and lay a calendar out to where 
our events make sense to somebody who got in the car, you know, on this day and are going to make it through to California on this day? What what is happening within the states along that drive so that they're not feeling like, well, we missed that because it happened a week after and we've already passed through. I really think we can come up with some good relations um, through this process and, and some fun competitiveness. I've heard from scores of international travelers that the things they want to experience the most in Texas are a rodeo and line dancing, because these are things you can't do in Europe or Japan. If you could just do 10 days of these, I practically guarantee you Amarillo would be like a League of Nations for those 10 days. <laughs> you know, this is one of the reasons that we're excited to kick off with the course um, Ranch Rodeo. We know that people yearn for rodeos and and they yearn for cowboys and and we get calls about people wanting to go to, you know, a honky tonk and do the line dancing. Sadly, we don't really have a lot of options um, for that, but those conversations are being had out there, too, because uh, that's not just the Route 66 traveler. I mean, that's an expectation um, of people from, you know, domestically just coming through Amarillo and and just going back to the destination mindset. What are people looking for when they come here and how do how do we do that well for them? Because line dancing, and honky tonks really, really speak to us, you know, and, and who we are. So um, I just think it's it's a fun thing to be able to add into the experience. You need to be looking into Guinness World Records. Like, what's the longest line dance? I mean, you're going to have Sixth Street <laughs> closed off. Exactly. You've got the perfect venue right there. Yeah, I'll put that one in the pot. We're taking all the ideas and hashing them out over the next few years. <laughs> Do you have any other uh, big plans uh, kind of waiting to come to the front burner for the for the years ahead? And, and how are you going to stay ahead of all those other states and cities uh, duking it out for tourism dollars. Well, you know, we this is why we started early. We wanna we wanna build it out, and I'm not gonna call it a practice run because we're all in. You know, this this isn't a practice run, but it is uh, three years out, and and we can have a hiccup or two and and get it hashed out. We want to grow it year over year so that we're um, a fantastic event in 2026 and doing what works well for the visitors. Um, so there's a lot of thought that has gone into that. We also have, um, now funding comes into this. We've we've had some funding requests that did not make it through, but that that's not going to deter us. We've got some projects that we are really wanting to get um, off and running this year and do year over year visually from a revitalization, a signage standpoint, some of these things, we want it to look different to the visitor in 2026. We want them to come to the festival every year and not just see the growth of the festival, but to see a difference in, you know, the spaces, the signage. Um, so we're looking at neon sign programs to revitalize some neon signs along the boulevard. We're looking at the asphalt shields. Um, where we can put the big Route 66 asphalt, you know, shields on the asphalt. And and we'll probably start with something like in between each county. So it kind of lets you know when you're going into the next county along the route and then into the communities and along the historic districts. And so we've got big, big plans and, and we want it to visually feel different whenever we get to 2026. And then we can just have a really big party to celebrate all of it. For many years, a lot of Route 66 travelers really they would only stop in Amarillo for a steak and 
and maybe to paint a Cadillac, and that's about it. I, I've followed too many people on social media, talked to too many of them to know that um, by the time they hit the Texas state line coming from Oklahoma, a lot of folks realized, ooh, we're behind. we got to pick it up here. And so they just kind of scurried along through the 178 miles of Texas. And uh, if they stopped at all, it was just for a quick bite and a splash of paint. And Mm -hmm. that's it. Um, But some do get off. And, yeah, the Cadillac and the the steaks, those are great things, of course. They're... They are things that we're known for here, but only a small percentage of the Route 66 travelers actually venture down what locals call 6th Street or technically Southwest 6th Avenue, that that one mile of historic 66 between Georgia and Western. But you know, and I know you recall the time that uh, you and I and Eric Miller drove every inch of 66 across Potter County. It took all day. Because um, we were doing inventories of, well, where the road was and where some previous uh, green signs had been placed and sometimes misplaced by the city. Um, more than 40 miles of it. There's a lot of 66 to see, including the Boulevard, um, Fillmore, Pierce, uh, southbound actually became uh, the southbound 66 mm-hmm. in the 1960s. What do you doing during the festival to try to get people to check out those other miles, not just the one mile. So we've got a couple of things rolling out um, that are going to roll out during the festival and then be available year round after that, that we're really excited about that we think is going to help with this. And um, one of those is a passport. And that's really going to speak to the the counties and, and really taking your time to see the icons in the Texas Panhandle. Um, The difference between our passport and a lot that you see is we are actually going to do a full-size vinyl album um, with some great uh, rockabilly artwork on it. Um, And then whenever you pull out the album, the sleeve will have the map of where you get your coins, and they are metal coins, and they will pop into a vinyl album. So um, it's just a, a really fun way to get people moving along the route. And um, if you've got, you know, the passport thing, you get these really cool coins that are branded for the, the big stops. Another thing that we're doing actually is an app. So we've got an app that will um, give you different choices of itineraries, um, really show you a map of how to travel through the different experiences that you could have. It'll um, have the calendar on there so you can see all year's events and the different places that they're at, um, highlight some of the restaurants along the route, those kind of things. So it will really help, we think. So they can be self-driven. Um, they'll have um, some recorded tour guide, you know, history, historical facts in there, um, those kind of things. So we're hoping that this is a good start and then we'll find other tools as we as we move along as well. I'll tell you another thing that I'm we're finding in the last couple of years is food. The more we talk about food, uh, the better we can tell the story of Route 66 and get them down into the historic district and, and get visitors and locals down onto the boulevard. And, you know, I just I, I, I could talk about that for for all day, but we have so many options in Amarillo. We've we've got 
some great refugee communities that just bring out so many different flavors. And a lot of those restaurants are along the boulevard. And, you know, it's it's an experience that I think everybody should have. And, and you could really make a whole year of once a week trying a new restaurant with a new flavor and, and you know, trying a new uh a new ethnicity, you know, and, and really enjoy that. So we've been encouraging that as well. And and we're finding that fits very well with the Route 66 story. Yeah, I think I'm really in favor of that. Um, You know, not everybody wants the same Route 66 experience. Mm -hmm. um, And that means people are going to differ in uh, the kinds of lodging they want. Some will want a a, a vintage, you know, classic roadside motel, but others may want a historic hotel. And the same thing goes for food. There are a lot of people who do 66 who basically could do the whole trip on diner food. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just burgers and shakes and fries yeah. and, you know, put on 20 pounds in a heartbeat <laughs> or, or three weeks, whatever. <laughs> uh, but then others like, uh, you know, maybe a little more progressive fare and all the ethnic fare. And Amarillo is a gold mine, as you, as you said. It really when is. When it comes to our ethnic cuisine. I love eating up on the boulevard. And those are overlooked places. They really are. When we come back, we'll look at the future of tourism in Amarillo and how we're preparing for that future. But meanwhile, mark your calendars June 1st through June 10th, the first Texas Route 66 festival. You won't want to miss it. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. If predicting the future were as easy as looking into a crystal ball, then everyone could be prepared. Of course, it's never, ever quite that easy, and especially when you're talking about a city. After all, much of what you do is dependent upon our infrastructure, right? I mean, this includes everything from transportation, which includes the highways, airplanes, and so forth, to event venues uh, like the convention center, hotels, restaurants, all those things. What do you think Amarillo needs more of 10 to 20 years down the road? You know, things that could take us to the next level. You know, this is so specific to different markets. There's, it, we're we're at a point right now where we have a certain kind of growth that we're about to hit, and and I'll dip into the EDC a little bit. You know, there's so many contracts coming down the line, and so much development as far as employment goes. We really need staff. You know, I mean, it comes down to. Um, without just harping on it and and staying on the topic, I'll just touch on it a little bit. But whenever uh, Amarillo, you know, we we keep a very low unemployment rate. And a lot of times we're the lowest in the state. So whenever we've got new development coming in um, and and we've got these skills and, and all of that happening, people look to the hospitality industry when they're lacking in employees. 
you know, and whenever you've got that great front desk person with a great smile that shows up to work on time, that's willing to learn, knows how to dress, has great etiquette for the workplace, um, they're willing to train those people. And so they pull them out of the hospitality. And we've seen this since COVID. And with all of the development and business that we've got, I, I am concerned um, for the staffing in our hospitality industry because they really do, um, they do, they, they, and it's great opportunities for the employees coming out of the hospitality industry. You know, I, I won't say anything about that um, in a bad way, but I, I am concerned about that. I think that we need to be very intentional on how we are bringing people into the hospitality industry and how we're supporting the other businesses coming into town to make sure that we've got great staffing all the way around. Um, I do think our population is getting ready to grow. Um, we need to be mindful of how that happens. Um, uh, something I, I worry about in my position at work, but also just being a member of the community and, and coming from here is we need fast growth. And I expect that fast growth is is getting ready to happen based on on everything that we're seeing. But we have to keep who we are. You know, it's very important to me and, and I believe to the visitors that we're bringing in that um, we stay true to ourselves, that we keep our panhandle hospitality, that we keep that kindness that you find here, um, that people understand as they move in that they're being folded into our culture, um, into the way that we look at our land, the way that we respect each other, you know, those kind of things are very important to me. And I think that uh, it supports so many different aspects of how we grow and, and what's coming in. Facility-wise, I could talk about that forever. You know, we we definitely, you know, Tri-State Fairgrounds, I would love to see um, some growth on the facilities there and, and some upgrades. We've got great equestrian events that come in. They do a great job hosting it, but we could we could really grow those events. And those are the kind of events that we are home to. With conventions, we bid on those, they come in, they leave for five years, we bid again and, and bring them back. When we're talking equestrian and even sports tournaments, these are the kind of things that it's a family reunion for the attendees. They don't want to move around every year. They 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 want to know their facility. They want to know what hotel they're staying in. They want to see the same people every year. And we are home to them. So it's very important that we take care of them um, and grow with them and give them opportunity to grow. So we need to grow some of our facilities around town, you know, Civic Center, Fairgrounds, all of those give us great opportunity. Well, no one could have predicted COVID and all the hardships it brought to everyone, including right here in Amarillo. It's just as hard to be able to predict things like airfares, the price of gas, inflation, everything else. What do you think the future will hold for those traveling to and through Amarillo? I do believe that um, we'll level out the uh, the through Amarillo. We don't ever want to take that for granted. That is our bread and butter. You know, we don't ever want to see that shrink at all, but it is a stable environment. People will always travel on these highways that that come through Amarillo. So um, how to grow that is not necessarily up to us. It, it's where the other businesses are, where the other leisure activities are. We want to be mindful of how do we add the destination experienced um, traveler to that pass through travel. Um, so that's where some of the uncertainties come into. And, and we're finding our footing on how to tell that story correctly and how to get the right audiences 
And there's nothing wrong with the, uh, the transient tourist. I mean, not at all. They need fuel. They need lots of things. They and, feed our com- uh, economy for sure. Yeah. I mean, I've heard it said many times that Amarillo is just, you know, the world's largest truck stop. Well, okay, that's that's okay because they make money. And once the Buckies is done, there will actually be nine truck stops along roughly a three-mile stretch I-40. They'll all be concentrated in one area, mm-hmm. which is nice. You know, they're competing against each other, but they're not interfering with any other aspects of commerce and tourism in the in the rest of the town. Yeah. And they're all there, perfectly located to pick some pockets. Exactly. <laughs> Many years ago, I said the best-kept secret in these parts was Paladura Canyon, which you said correctly, is the second largest canyon in the country. Um, this has slowly become a moot point, especially once the mountain bikers carved out a very impressive network of trails. And and many people camp there uh, or are day users. Is there much unutilized capacity to steer travelers toward this? Can they handle much more? So Powder Canyon in peak season is at its capacity. Just to, to be very honest and frank about that, we, we um, are at a point in our office where we're trying to be cognizant about when we actually market Polydor Canyon. It is the best kept secret, but the people that know about it love going to it, you know. So we want to tell the story and we want to bring the visitors in to experience it, but maybe spring break and midsummer is not the time. Um, so we want it to be a good experience too, you know, we don't want them crawling on top of each other. So we're we're really we're taking a, a a breath and a step back, looking at how we're telling the story because it's in our backyard and it's ours too. It's not just the visitors. We want to make sure that it stays there for for us. So um, we have been working very hard um, to kind of pull in, you know, alabates and some of the other outdoor activities, Wildcat Bluff, these kind of things to give a more rounded out outdoor experience um, so that we're not just pumping people into the line out at Polidary Canyon. Um, we're also working very closely on the project for the BLM land, the crossbar. Um, and that has really found some momentum in the last year. So one of the things that um, is very exciting, we've been shortlisted for a couple of grants on that, and we're watching that very close. We'll find out in the fall. They're actually doing a study for one of them right now, and we expect that will move that grant forward. So we're looking at an access road to get you from 287 into the park. Um, one of the things I've said throughout this whole process as we're planning for this and working on this is that we're not looking to necessarily double the visitors off of it, we want to double the nights. So if we can take the same visitors, get twice as many hotel room nights, and and alleviate some traffic off of Polydor Canyon, balance out the experience, um, it's two different views of the land, two different experiences, both very beautiful. Um, we're excited about this opportunity um, to expand our, our, you know, our opportunities to be out on public land. Um, but also not overuse it. And one of the interesting things that I have found through this process that shocked me is um, in the state of Texas, only about 4% of the land in Texas is public. And so I think growing up in Amarillo and having family with big acreage and having Polidary Canyon, I was astounded. 
And ever since I learned this a couple of years ago, every time I take a road trip, I'm much more cognizant of where the fences are, you know, and I've lived in New Mexico before, traveled through Colorado. So um, I had never stopped and thought about all the public land and that you can just pull off and be in, in the national forest or be on national land or BLM land or, you know, whatever. And I had never stopped and thought about, we don't have that in Texas, you know? And so I think up here in the panhandle, we've got a great opportunity to tell that story. And we've got so many people coming in from states that are used to having that opportunity that um, I think it's going to be very special. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this the only BLM land in the whole state of Texas? It is. It is. Wow, that's crazy because you just you don't have to go too far west of here to run into states where as much as three-quarters of the land is public access. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they love that, and they take it for granted. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we would like to have maybe a little more. That's right. Okay, let's talk about sod poodles just a little bit. I know we touched on it before, um, the, the HOT dollars, the stadium, and so forth. Tell me a little bit more about people who come to town. They're not necessarily from town, but they're from out of town, which was really a, a big part of the plan. They take in a game, they dine, spend the night, um, and then return home. I mean, heck— I've done this before, and I'm, I guess I consider myself in town close enough where I've spent the night in downtown Amarillo and just made an evening of it to go see a ball game, eat, yeah. go to the brewery, and then go to sleep and do it all on foot. <laughs> exactly. Well, we've got some great visitors that come in for baseball. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of alluded the, to this before that um, there's mixed feelings on what their impact is. I, I don't think, and this is really just me from conversations and looking at small amounts of data here and there since they've uh, opened Hodgetown, but uh, I don't think necessarily that that visitor driving into town that is just staying one or two nights and really headed somewhere else, I don't think they're necessarily like, oh, well, yeah, I didn't know there was a stadium here. We'll go to a game. I really believe that most of the out-of-town visitors going to Hodgetown came here to go to Hodgetown. Um, the Sod Poodles are performing so well, and they do so wonderful um, in their market and competing, you know. And when I say competing, I don't just mean the baseball. I mean, you know, the merchandise sales, the branding, the mascot, the name, every step of the way, we have stayed top of mind to those fans. And um, it's been exciting to watch. And, and they definitely have their own crowd. When I first arrived here back in the 80s, I knew people from the far-flung rural communities as far away as Kansas and Colorado would come here for the weekend just to shop and dine. That blew my mind, by the way, coming from Chicago. You know, we maybe drove 20 minutes to the nearest mall. I can't imagine driving 200 miles to go shopping <laughs> and then spend the night there, make a whole weekend out of it. And basically, you could go to the mall here on any given weekend and see license plates from Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Colorado. You could count on it. But that was before Walmart built stores in most of those tiny towns. And I don't hear as much about that kind of weekend shopping extravaganza as I once did. Do you hear any anything like this at all? So we actually have points of interest that we track, um, geofence, if you will, and, and really pay attention to 
the zip codes that are going in and out of there. And surprising, maybe, because I think it's not all centered into an indoor mall, so it's not as obvious. Shopping is always our number one. Um, I think I think there might be a dip once or twice in the last few years where it was number two. But um, I think that speaks volumes to the panhandle, the panhandle of Oklahoma, exactly what you're talking about. Um, uh, so, no, it is it is a great supporter of of our tourism industry. And, and you know, the um, my predecessor would say Chick-fil-A might be an attraction for us. You know, some of these smaller towns are excited to go to Chick-fil-A when they're in town. You know, so you don't take that for granted. We've we've got things um, that draw them. And, you know, if you have a doctor's appointment in Amarillo, why wouldn't you go shop? Why wouldn't you, you know, enjoy your favorite chain that you don't have at home? And and so, um, yeah, it's it's still a big influencer for us and a huge um, base support that we depend on. But um, like I said, I just don't think it's as obvious because the shopping experience is more spread out now. I heard it said for many years that once Amarillo went over the 200,000 population mark, that things would change. More retailers, more restaurants would want to come here. And, well, here we are, uh, 2023, and last I heard, we're at about 202,000 now. Have you heard any rumblings of this anticipated growth? And if so, can you talk about any of them? Well, I mean, you said one of them just a minute ago. We got Bucky's. Yeah, that, that's a big one. <laughs> For a tourism gal, that is exciting. Yeah. No, we're we're excited to see what um, that will actually um, bring with it because we know looking at other Bucky's whenever they go into place and get open, the development around them just naturally happens. And so we're excited to see what happens um, with that. Uh you know, there's not a whole lot that I know of that I can talk about. Um, I Again, going back to the EDC doing such a, a fabulous job, I think that as we see the, the companies opening that they have been working with, we're going to start seeing that attract other things. Um, I mean, Panera is a good example. We're starting to see some of these brands that that weren't looking at us before. But realistically, we do compete with Lubbock. Lubbock's two um, hours, or well, an hour and a half away. Um, and they are a little bit bigger than us. They've, you know, we see, or what I have seen and experienced in the last couple of years on, on the projects that I've watched is they really kind of look at both of our markets to make the decisions. So um, we'll see what happens. I expect it'll start, though. And and when we have this big festival this summer, are you going to be out there meeting the people, shaking hands and all that? <laughs> Absolutely. And collecting data, right? <laughs> yes, yes. As much data as we possibly can. Um, one of the exciting things about this first one is, you know, it's hard to promote a festival when you don't have pictures of a festival. That so makes it tough. Um, yes. we've got photographers and drones and videographers and all of this set up for every inch of the event to make sure that as soon as we close out, we can start marketing for next year um, and have some really exciting assets to share with everybody um, and tell that story. Uh, but yeah, you'll see me for 10 days and branded well and having fun with everybody and, and definitely taking in how they're taking the experience and, and we'll be evaluating it every step of the way to see what we can do better next year. So while the festival is 10 days, which is great, that still leaves 355 more days for the rest of the year. What other plans do you have to create that speed bump that causes people to get off the freeway? 
So we have um, worked, uh, we've been very intentional about bringing in the entire, and I've said this over and over, all of the counties of Route 66. So one of the very first things that we did was a, um, a, a brand, a logo that everybody could utilize, um, whether you're a merchant or a restaurant or an event or a city or a county. Whenever you have something happening, you can use this logo. Um, and it is a, a, it's 100 years in the headlights right now and then for 2026 it will be a hundred years of road tripping but it'll have the same look to it so um that's the very first thing we did to make sure that we can brand things that already exist and things that are coming online so um and a couple of examples of this uh, the hoodoo mural festival has been happening for a few years now we're seeing great potential in its growth it is um, the right age group to start a new generation of travelers and replace some of the displaced to older, you know, that, that aren't coming through anymore. Well, it happens downtown, but it's on Route 66. So um, just taking some of those events that we already have and making sure that we're telling those stories to the Route 66 travelers so they understand all the things throughout the year that there are to do. And then also for the partners that are wanting to bring events on that are more fitting to their timelines, they can brand correctly to Route 66 so that it's hitting the right calendars and, and the stories being told correctly. Lastly, if we could see 2033 from here, how do you think it would be different from today? You know, I, I hope it's... Um, different in a few ways. We've, we've got some long-term plans. We're actually getting ready to um, look into doing a master tourism plan, working with um, other stakeholders to really put some thought into this and, and make sure that we stay on a, a steady path towards a, a very specific goal. But again, back to that destination traveler, you know, I, I hope that by 2033, we really are cultivating the travelers that their children are going to want to bring their children back for an experience. And we're really thinking long-term generational destination. Um, I hope that we will see, and I expect that we will see some um, improvements in our sports facilities. I know that we will have Kids Inc. So, um, our sporting market is going to look a lot different. Youth sports and things like that is going to look a lot different than it does today. And, and that will be very successful. We're the, we're the perf perfect regional hub for so many sports. So, um, you know, we're, we're bringing events back home from AQHA and those kind of things. And, and I think that we'll speak a little better to our heritage than we are currently um, with equestrian events and those kind of things. Our guest today has been Cashin Smith, Executive Director of the Amarillo Convention and Visitor Bureau. Cashin, give us your best shot. Come out and celebrate Route 66 with us. Go to visitamarillo.com, find all the fun things to do, and have some fun with us out on the route. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. 
You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff speak.